0: I'll bet you didn't think you'd hear this voice again for a while. Hi folks, it's Andy Roberts here, and welcome to a special Jalloween episode of the Nasty Pasty podcast, where films that escaped the puritanical video-nasty outrage of 1980s Britain eventually drift into, to potentially deprave and corrupt unsuspecting viewers. It's been quite a big chunk of time since the initial run of Nasty Pasty. We finished in June of this year, so that essentially I could focus on writing my book on the video-nasty scandal. That is still happening, but it's going slower than I'd really like, because I've just moved into a new home, the internet isn't quite set up, my films are all over the place, and I'm imminently becoming a foster parent in the next few months. As a result, I thought I'd take advantage of the seasonal terror of Halloween and cover the film that I foolishly forgot when we did one of our old Jallo episodes. I was meant to cover Lizard in a Woman's Skin combined with Black Belly of the Tarantula, but I instead substituted Black Belly for The Iguana with the Tongue of Fire, For no reason, apparently, Black Belly had just been completely wiped from my memory. Still, it's a good excuse for a return, so we'll be covering that classic from 1971, and to round it up in a neat package, we'll be covering another giallo film, namely Lamberto Barber's A Blade in the Dark from 1983. Two that are over a decade apart. Should be pretty fun. As it's been a long time, and I'll need to oil up the rusty parts, so to speak, and reiterate what to expect from a nasty-pasty episode... As a huge mahoosive fan of the films involved in the video Nasties scare, I decided to branch out and find films that were so similar in content that they really ought to have been Nasties themselves, based on the same yardstick. The main goal of this is to highlight how stupid the whole fracas was, but almost as equally as important is introducing you listeners to more obscure films that are at least thematically similar to the Forbidden Fruits themselves. Firstly, I go through a synopsis of the film, and beware, spoilers are plenty through the whole episode, so your skipping function won't be too much use here, I'm afraid. After the synopsis, I'll then talk about the film, about its production if possible, the cast, the plot, similarities, inspirations, before talking about the releases and their treatment in the UK. As mentioned before, today's films are The Black Belly of the Tarantula and A Blade in the Dark, both giallo films which we've covered many a time before now. With that now on the table, let's return in full force with our first film today. <laughs> Maria Zani, a rich lady who enjoys intense massages, is accused by her husband Paolo of both being unfaithful and a blackmailer, apparently responsible for a scandalising photo being mailed to him. While denying that she's involved, Maria nonetheless telephones someone once Paolo leaves, while at the same time, a gloved stranger picks up a freshly poisoned needle. Later in the evening, Maria is attacked by the strange figure, who pierces her with the needle and instantly paralyses her, before cutting her stomach open with a knife. The police arrive in the morning, including an inspector, Tallini, who questions Paolo, who's being evasive about both his marital issues and dishonest about his whereabouts. One of Maria's friends reveals to Tallini that she was the one who was called, about the argument that Maria's had with her husband. Returning home, Tellini embraces his wife Anna and informs her of his apprehension of the case, doubting his own aptitude in solving it, though he does spot some strange details about the scandalising photo, which shows a nude Maria being fondled by another male. Half of the photo is with Paolo, who asks a shady man to locate the mysterious male, while later that evening the killer stalks a woman named Murta, who's closing up a clothes shop, cornering her in a mannequin storeroom before paralysing her and slitting open her abdomen. The police find cocaine at the scene the next day, leading Tallini to believe drug trafficking to be involved, as well as the paralysing needle that's been left behind. On a lead to locate Zani, Tallini finds a painting depicting traditional acupuncture in his hideout, which turns out to be the home of a doctor who's trained in just such a medical procedure. Later that night, Tallini is confronted by Zani, who proclaims his innocence and asks that he not be pursued so that he can find his wife's killer himself. Tallini's work leads him to another professor, who speaks about the murder methods being similar to the antics of the tarantula hawk wasp who paralyses a spider before disembowelling it and laying its larvae inside, with the arachnid unable to do anything as its flesh is eaten. Tallini eventually finds huge amounts of cocaine inside the boxes of tarantulas, and the professor is then arrested afterwards. When Tallini and Anna make love later that day, someone spies on them from a building afar and records them, while an unidentified woman asks a man not to send a photo. Paolo has tracked down the mystery man named Mario... ...who attempts to send a photo, irrespective of his instructions... ...to a woman named Franca. Paolo gives chase to the man, ending up on the rooftops of nearby buildings... ...attracting the attention of Tallini, who also gives chase. Zani eventually catches up to Mario... ...but fatally struggles with him and falls to his death. Tallini resumes the chase but is suddenly interrupted by the killer who runs Mario down with a red car, leaving Tallini frustrated but in possession of the photograph intended for Franca. The killer then enters Mario's apartment and disposes of the remaining film, destroying most of the evidence. Finding an unprocessed reel, Tallini posts the photo and awaits who will arrive with the blackmail money, only for the older Franca to promptly arrive and then flee. Franca returns to her apartment, aware that she's being pursued but it turns out that it's just Tallini who wishes to know more about the blackmailing. Franca, however, wishes to leave questioning for another day, only to be attacked and murdered by the killer shortly after Tallini's departure. The unprocessed reel is revealed to be the footage that the man took of Tallini and Anna's sexcapade, much to Tallini's embarrassment, while the woman who's working with Mario, named Laura, is revealed to be working at the spa that Maria Zani was at for her massages. Having a disagreement with Secretary Jenny... Laura is eager to keep their activities secret from the police, but Jenny claims to be too afraid at the deaths of the girls and vows to go to the police, taking refuge with someone she knows. Unbeknownst to her, her unseen friend actually turns out to be the killer, stunning her with the needle before stabbing her multiple times in the stomach. Talini arrives at the spa to question Laura, who denies any involvement, forcing him to question all the staff instead, including the camp waiter, Ginetto and the masseur, who's revealed to be blind. Laura then agrees to find him some evidence to help his case and telephones him in the middle of the night, asking Tolini to meet her at the spa. On his arrival, he finds Laura murdered in her shower, but spots a missing button and has a realisation as to the killer's identity – just as the killer slips into Tallini's apartment with Anna all alone, rendering her unconscious. The killer is then revealed to be the blind masseur, who is now suspiciously able to see without any eye defects. Tallini gains access, and believing Anna to be dead, the inspector attacks and beats the killer into unconsciousness. Having been arrested, it transpires that the masseur pretended to be blind to discover new victims of his pathological rage at not being able to maintain an erection, only being able to do so because they're unable to help themselves. He then sees his wife in the women, whom he'd killed many years before, and resorts to viciously killing them to rekindle that masculine frustration. Yes,
1: the tarantula is a terrible insect. It has only one fatal enemy, a hymenopter, a so-called wasp with salmon-coloured wings. The wasp is always the first to attack. Once the wasp is attacked, it becomes a battle to the end. The wasp is always the winner, you see. The tarantula has no escape. Mm -hmm. To finish the battle, finally, she'll sting the tarantula. The tarantula is stung and paralyzed by the wasp, who will then disembowel it in order to put her larvae there. You understand? The tarantula remains alive while the larvae is nourished with its flesh. Thus, the victim can do nothing to defend itself, though aware of being disemboweled and eaten alive. I understand. I wanted you to see this because of its analogy to the method used in the two murders. It's been interesting, Professor. Thank you. But coming back to the second victim, how well did you know her? She was an acquaintance, not a close friend. Now you must excuse me unless, of course, there's something more to ask.
0: So, we're back in the world of Jallo once again. Animals, numbers, gaudy fashions, flowery interior design, and of course, J&B Whiskey. This little sanguine number is from 1971, released during the huge flood of jolly unleashed by the success of Dario Argento's landmark classic The Bird with the Crystal Plumage in 1970. As a result, it's a fairly typical Jallo film in lots of ways, but like so many examples, it has its own individual bouquet that genre fans can enjoy. Directed by Paolo Cavara, the film focuses on a string of vicious drug-addled disembowelment killings, seemingly triggered by some undisclosed activity at an exclusive spa facility. The inspector in charge investigates the crimes, all the while battling his own insecurities, a whole sea of red herrings, and of course the vicious killer himself. It opens with a rather impressive display of erotic massage, with the lovely Maria played by Barbara Boucher, relaxing and being pampered by a masseur. It's quite a charged opening, and one that's quite similar to how Sergio Martino started his Jallo Torso, a few years later in 1973. It then reveals that she has a husband, who's accusingly waving a compromising photo at her, suspecting her of purposely causing the melodrama. While it doesn't exactly establish either character in a particularly positive or negative light, you get the impression that Maria is probably going to be your central character, especially since Boucher's star quality would make it seem quite likely. Kavara, however, pulls an Alfred Hitchcock out of the bag, and no sooner have we settled down to Boucher as our heroine than she performs the full Marion Crane and suffers a brutal death at the hands of the mysterious killer. On the subject of the murders, it's actually much like Iguana with the Tongue of Fire, in that the modus operandi is pretty unique amongst Jolly. The killer pierces the victim with an acupuncture needle, dipped with a venomous agent capable of rendering the victim in a state of full-body paralysis. Once they're in this state, he proceeds to slice open their stomachs with a blade, with the victim being alive, conscious, and completely unable to stop the agonising demise. It's a very dark and sadistic methodology, but we'll discuss more about the specifics related to the killer later. Another kill has the shop owner, Murta, becoming increasingly aware of impending danger before being chased by the killer into the shop's back rooms. This bit in particular is very stylish, with lots of bumping into glitzy mannequins and the claustrophobia of being boxed in by multiple displays of ladies' clothing. It certainly harkens back to the fashionistas in peril of something like Bava’s blood and black lace. But there's a wildly disorientating camera technique too, where it's seemingly uncontrollably swinging and veering madly in all directions amongst the panic of Murta trying to escape. Quite worthy of Andy Milligan's work, with his infamous swirl camera technique, the effect is quite successfully panic-inducing as it whirls around unsteadily as the soundtrack intensely blares. Jenny's death is also similarly disturbing as it utilises the tried and tested method of revealing that the killer is someone known to the victims, as she's comfortable letting them in. Another nasty edge is brought to the scene, however, as the killer appears much angrier and frustrated than normal, repeatedly stabbing her in the gut quickly, rather than taking his time. While some of the kills are gory, the blood isn't dwelt upon too luridly, and these scenes maintain that jello-exclusive ability to remain classy as well as perversely violent. The murders aren't the only thing, however, to impress the viewer. The high-octane chase between Mario and Paolo on the rooftops is equally as thrilling, especially due to some deft editing and masterful pacing. It culminates in a scene very similar to Argento's Cat O' Nine Tales, which was released the same year, in which the two men struggle, leading to Paolo's fatal plunging from the rooftops to the ground. Like most scenes of this nature, it was clearly achieved with a dummy or a mannequin of some kind. But there's more of an impact this time as the body actually smashes a window during its descent – Unintentional, of course, but the fact that this element remains in the film gives it a little extra gravitas, even if the reason for its inclusion is budgetary, as they probably couldn't reshoot. Any Final Destination fans out there will also likely appreciate the scene of Tallini almost being killed by a bunch of pipes smashing through his windscreen, way before the infamous pile-up of Final Destination 2 had been conceived. In fact, there's very similar scenes in both Four Flies in Grey Velvet and Nightmare Maker as well, for those who appreciate long objects decapitating people through windscreens. Should be its own genre, really, like log exploitation or something. Anyhow, back to the film, and what's really good about it, the soundtrack from Onio Morricone is always worth a mention, especially in this iteration as his dependable haunting score has the added creepiness of singing ladies exhaling in an ethereal, ghostly way. It certainly adds a creepy vibe to the film's scenes, and it only cements Morricone's talent at scoring Gialli in general. The film is quite easy to follow, as we're squarely with the conflicted Inspector Tallini, for the most part, after the false heroine device of Maria. Tallini is quite unique amongst Giallo protagonists, as he's a police officer rather than the everyman. This, of course, happens in some of the later Giallo entries, like What Have They Done To Your Daughters and The New York Ripper, but those mentioned also take a more poliziotesky and slasher approach respectively. Black Belly is through and through a giallo picture, with only minor polizio elements. As is common for the genre, our protagonist too is blinded or short-sighted in some way, but uniquely it appears in the form of Tallini's own lack of self-confidence and anxiety. He worries constantly that he's not cut out for his job and that he's going to fail, often taking a cynical view of the crimes before him, interpreting their brutality as a good excuse to pack in the police game. It is, however, his adoring wife Anna who constantly peps him up, with a rather underrated performance from Stefania Sandrelli, who, sadly, wasn't in too much else, really. She's caring, doting, takes care of most of the domestic issues with a smile, and is portrayed a little bit like she's out of Tallini's League. The sad thing is, is that Tallini also acts a little like she deserves better, but thankfully she cares more for him than he really realises, and the sex scene between them later is actually kind of sweet rather than purely titillating. This latter point leads into the rest of the film quite nicely, as the pair are caught and on camera, while we are with Cellini for the majority of the film, the screenplay throws almost everything into the mix quite savagely, that it feels both stuffed silly with red herrings and overwrought with melodrama. There's the underlying plot device that there's clearly a blackmail operation being undertaken with the various spa clients, headed up by spa owner Laura and her right-hand man Mario. Receptionist Jenny is also involved, but in a conflicted, I'm not comfortable with this kind of way. This plot device takes up the majority of the film's mystery as you scrutinise all the players to see who out of these blackmailers will be the killer. For the most part, it works, as you're constantly introduced to new suspects like the middle-aged Franca, the sneering Mario, and eventually the stuck-up Laura. With the film opening on such themes like blackmail, infidelity, and secrets, it does make sense that these would carry through the film – But unfortunately, those who are in for a suitably complicated resolution with a crafty assassin offing those with something to hide will be terribly disappointed. As with most of the dead ends or perfunctory characters in a jolly, this entire subplot is one giant red herring, as the murders have absolutely goose egg to do with the intrigue of getting dirt and extorting cash. It's a bit of a shame really, but such is the game that Jallo films play. If you can indulge in the petty squabbling, backstabbing and melodrama that Italian murder mysteries offer, and let's face it, most of us do, you'll probably enjoy these sections. It does leave me wondering, however, though, who killed Mario with the car, as when the kill is revealed, it's evident that it couldn't really be them who does it. The film may mention who did this, but I can't quite recall at the moment. The screenplay also throws drug smuggling into the mix but this avenue does give a bit of a clunky explanation for the film's title, in which an entomologist likens the killer's murder methods to that of certain species of wasp, which paralyse spiders before laying their young on the belly, allowing them to feast on the body while the spider is powerless to stop it. Another thing, though, about this fruit salad of scenes is that we also get some pretty memorable incidental characters, like Maria's friend, who is both animated and surprisingly nonplussed about her friend's demise. And then we have Gennetto, the very camp spa butler, who drops a guest's cigarettes in the pool flamboyantly when they just can't reach them. For those who like oddball characters, there's certainly a fair treasure trove here to select from in this film. Now I'll get to the killer, whom, I must admit, I jokingly guessed who it would be at one point of the movie. Quite often, if a giallo is a little convoluted, there's a relatively decent way to guess who the killer is – You've all heard of Occam's razor, which, is, which basically means the simplest solution is usually the right one. I like to think of Jallo's razor, where the killer is more likely to be the most unlikely person based upon how they look or act. As an example, there's a Spanish Jallo called Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll, who, spoiler alert, the killer turns out to be a woman in a wheelchair... I also equally guessed that one correctly, because as soon as I saw the wheelchair, I thought, this is going to be some contrived reason why she can suddenly walk and go around killing people. By the same process, as soon as I learned that the masseur was blind, I just thought, it's going to be him, because reasons. And that's exactly what it turned out to be. The masseur remains unnamed, but his chief feature is that he wears sunglasses constantly due to blindness, though it's later revealed that he's actually shamming. In quite a frequently used trope, he's a raving misogynist who murders pretty girls because they remind him of his wife, whom he'd killed years before due to mocking his erectile dysfunction. While it is a little stereotypical, this situation does occur worryingly more often than we'd like to think in the real world today. His bizarre method of killing seems to be a literal revenge on his wife, paralysing them so that they can't reject him, push him away, or pose an argument to his desires. He runs his hands over their bodies, almost savouring the sexual side of his appetite, and likely trying to inflame his passion enough to regain his erection. Of course, when this doesn't happen, he then angrily slices his victim's stomach open, symbolically killing his wife all over again in a cathartic ritual. Conceptually quite horrible, but the way that all this information is catapulted at us towards the film's conclusion is a bit of a cheat, as there's no way to work this out before the ending approaches. But fortunately, that's not the point of the conclusion. This is Inspector Tallini's tale, after all, and upon realising who the murderer is, realises that his dear wife Anna is in danger. In a tense finale which sees Tallini rescue Anna from the clutches of the masseur, he sees her paralysed and assumes the worst. This emboldens him enough to fight for the woman he loves, and he beats the masseur senselessly until he's a bloody pulp. It's a real empowering moment for Cellini, as not only does he overcome his feelings of inadequacy to save Anna, but he solves the case in doing so, thereby solving his own paradox. It's a pretty satisfying ending, even if the killer's identity and motive are average at best. Ultimately, Black Belly of the Tranchula is fairly standard in terms of the structure, but it has some fairly decent protagonists to get behind, with enough of the Italian-flavoured red herrings and dramatic excess to keep most genre fans cheesily grinning from ear to ear. Main protagonist Inspector Tallini was played by Giancarlo Giannini, an Italian actor who was an Oscar nominee for his leading role on 1975's Pasqualino Settabilezze, or Seven Beauties as it's known elsewhere. He also popped up in 1997's sci-fi horror, Mimic, serial killer flick Hannibal from 2001, two 007 flicks, Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace, and he's even recently appeared in the miniseries Catch-22. Laura was played by French actress Claudine Auger, who was most famous for playing the role of femme fatale Domino in 1965's James Bond flick Thunderball. She appeared since in a few Italian movies of note – Namely, 1968's The Bastard and Mario Barva's video nasty entry A Bay of Blood. Interestingly, she was also Miss France way back in 1958, so she's got quite the illustrious career. The brief but memorable role of Maria was played by beautiful veteran Jello star Barbara Boucher, whom we've encountered before when we covered Fulci's Don't Torture a Duckling. Rosella Falk played the role of the unfortunate Franca, who had quite a reputation amongst giallo films, appearing in The Fifth Chord of the same year, and subsequently Seven Bloodstained Orchids in 71, and The Killer is on the Phone in 1972. Silvano Tranquilli played the role of Maria's husband Paolo, who'd been in the acting game since the 50s in stuff like Castle of Blood and The Terror of Dr. Hitchcock. From the early 70s, he appeared in quite a few Jallo pictures, like The Bloodstained Butterfly, So Sweet, So Dead, Smile Before Death, and The Cat in Heat, before appearing in Politzioteschi films later that decade, with appearances in Violent City, Syndicate Sadists, and Death Dealers. Shop owner Murta was played by familiar face Annabella Incontrera, whom we've seen before in the Jallo flick The Case of the Bloody Iris. And it's a similar story with Barbara Bach, who played Jenny. We've encountered this Bond girl before when we covered Short Night of the Glass Dolls, Another Jallo, and also Island of Mutations. The killer, the unnamed fake blind masseur, was played by Ezio Murano, who had a small role in Fulci's Lizard in a Woman's Skin, Fulci's sequel Return of White Fang, Jallo film White Dress for Marielle, and the Section 3 video nasty Mad Dog Killer. Giancarlo Prete played the mysterious Mario, who later cropped up in the post-apocalyptic biker movies Warriors of the Wasteland and Escape from the Bronx. The camp, and all too brief Janetto was played by Alabama-born Eugene Walter, who also popped up in memorable stints on The Pajama Girl Case and The House of Laughing Windows. Finally, the suspicious entomologist was played by Danielle Dublino, whom we've seen before in both Short Night of the Glass Dolls and Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man. The film was directed by Paolo Cavara, whom we've actually encountered before as the director of infamous Mondo movie, Mondo Carne. He had a relatively small filmography, but he managed to push out another giallo in 1976, Plot of Fear. The film was written by Marcello Danon, who was the sole producer of the film as well. Apart from this single giallo effort, he's most famous for his trio of French queer comedy films, Le Cage au Folle. He was helped in the writing department by Lucille Lex, who was responsible for the original screenplay of 1969's The Uninvited. As quite usual with these Jallo films, the remarkable Onnio Morricone composed the soundtrack, and there's not much to say about the genius, really, is there? Mario Mora did the editing on the film, whom we'd seen before on Short Night of the Glass Dolls and Cut and Run. While Fabrizio Sergenti Castellani assisted Cavara in his directing, who had lent his talents to Once Upon a Time in America and 2002's Ripley's Game. Unfortunately, Cavara's classic has not had the best distribution over here in the UK. It had no release at all during the VHS scare, and it still didn't turn up in the post video recording days. If it was, the combination of rather erotic scenes of naked ladies combined with some relatively graphic disembowelments might have attracted the attention of the police. But even to this day, Black Belly has still not received either a Blu-ray or DVD release over here, which is rather peculiar considering it's got quite a decent cast and is relatively well-known amongst the genre. The only way to then see this is to import the Region 1 DVD from Blue Underground – or you can find it on YouTube, if you're ever the resourceful one. So, that was Black Belly of the Tarantula. We'll now move on to our other film on this special Halloween episode, Lamberto Barva's A Blade in the Dark. A young boy is reluctantly led into a dark house by two other boys, who taunt him about his fear, chanting that he's a female. As they throw a ball down the basement stairs, challenging him to retrieve it, he descends into the shadows, only for a piercing scream to emit shortly afterwards. The now blood-soaked ball is then violently catapulted at the boys, causing them to flee. In the present day, music composer Bruno is moving into a countryside mansion owned by his friend Tony, where he intends to work on the soundtrack to a thriller that is currently unreleased, revealed to be the scene from the opening. Meeting with the director Sandra, she explains to Bruno that the mansion is sufficiently creepy enough to inspire his creativity, but evades any questions about the film's final reel, which she wants to keep a surprise. Meanwhile, at Bruno's mansion, a mysterious figure enters his living room and uses a craft knife to slash violently at a magazine displaying women's breasts. Soon, Bruno returns and works on his composition, while the intruder still lurks on the property. After detecting a faint whispering, Bruno explores the corridors and is watched by a distinctly female figure. He is suddenly alarmed when a strange lady called Katya emerges from one of the closets, frightened of a spider. Calming her down, she explains that she's a neighbour who's a friend of Linda, the mansion's previous occupant. After a little bit of flirting, Katia excuses herself to go to the toilet, while Bruno takes a phone call from Tony, after which he's unable to find her again, but he does find her diary in the closet that she was hiding in. It describes the aforementioned Linda, and a terrible secret involving her, and a feeling of impending dread over something. As Katya stealthily leaves the mansion through the gardens, she's suddenly surprised by the intruder who chases her and slashes at her with the craft knife. Injured, Katya stumbles into the mansion basement and tries to evade the killer by hiding behind an unfinished wall. When the coast appears to be clear, Katya is attacked and stabbed in the stomach with the craft knife before the killer stabs her in the throat, finally killing her before dragging her corpse out of the house. Bruno eventually discovers that the whispering he heard earlier is detectable on the recordings he's made, seemingly Katya, again referring to a secret involving Linda. As he takes a break outside, the killer snags Katya's corpse on a twig, causing Bruno to investigate the area. He finds nothing, and upon his return he notices suspicious blood spots on his trousers and subsequently finds more blood trails throughout the house. He then finds that his composition is ruined, with someone having trashed the recording devices. Bruno then questions the gardener, Giovanni, about Linda and Katya, but receives little useful information. When he gets back inside, he's surprised by his girlfriend, Julia, who's meant to be acting in Naples, but has instead visited on a whim. After recounting his suspicions that Katya is dead, Julia is sceptical, but Bruno puts the pieces together and deduces that Katya has met with Linda the previous night and they've been talking in the closet, which is why the recordings picked up the sounds. Tony shows up the next day and informs Bruno of a locked room where Linda has stored some of her possessions, while Sandra calls to arrange a meeting with Bruno. While working the next day, a girl named Angela arrives looking for Katya, revealed to be her roommate. After she explains that Linda let the pair swim in the mansion's swimming pool at their leisure, Bruno extends the same courtesy which Angela takes advantage of immediately – While swimming, Angela finds the discarded craft knife at the bottom of the pool and goes to wash up in the house's bathroom, while Bruno waits for Sandra at the editing studio. The feminine killer takes a knife from the kitchen and slowly creeps up the stairs as Angela washes her hair in the bathroom sink. Suddenly, she's stabbed through the hand, pinning her helplessly as the killer wraps her head in a plastic bag and violently beats it against the sink until she passes out. Dragging her body over the bath... The killer then slits Angela's throat, killing her before hysterically cleaning the blood spatters with a disturbed giggling. After Sandra doesn't show, Bruno returns home to find the bathroom suspicious, finding the knife gouge in the countertop, a bloody piece of tissue, and successfully comparing the knife blade to the earlier damage. After finding another piece of bloody tissue poking out from under Linda's storeroom door, Bruno is convinced that Angela is dead too, only to then receive a visit from Sandra. After he gets her up to speed, Sandra is interested in Linda and wishes to see the storeroom. The pair find it open, where they discover a bundle of magazines, clothes and a chest full of tennis balls, which horrifies Sandra, who realises that she knows Linda, revealed to be the inspiration behind her film and the opening scene. After hearing a sudden noise, the pair carefully explore the mansion, only to encounter a scared Julia who has returned again. After breathing a collective sigh of relief, Sandra leaves, and Julia explains her presence due to her show being cancelled for obscenity. In the morning, Julia is absent from the house, while Sandra places a call to Linda, asking for forgiveness for using Linda's life as the inspiration for her film. Linda, however, only cries, and simply hangs up when Sandra suggests meeting up. After Giovanni tells Bruno that Julia is always up early... Bruna confronts her about her odd behaviour, and she storms off to sunbathe. On his way to the studio, Bruna discovers that Julia has lied about the play being cancelled, while at the studio, Linda enters the editing room and steals Sandra's film reels, hacking the remaining ones using scissors. Back at the house, Giovanni discovers the bodies of Angela and Katia inside a water tank, and is then suddenly bludgeoned to death by Linda with a wrench. In the studio, Bruno and an editor discover the damaged print and try to repair it, managing to recover the final scene, which reveals a mysterious female figure emerging from the basement instead of the young boy from before. Sandra, in the meantime, arrives at the mansion, expecting to meet Linda in the garage, but she is suddenly surprised by the dying Giovanni. As she backs up away from him, Linda appears and strangles Sandra to death using the film strips that she stole. A worried Bruno drives home as he realises that Julia is in danger, while she herself wanders into the garage and finds a huge pile of discarded film. As she sifts through it, she discovers Sandra's body, and hears Linda cackling, causing her to flee through the basement corridors and creep around out of sight, until Linda's stash of tennis balls inexplicably fall near her, alerting Linda to her location. Dashing into a closet, Julia hides from Linda but is taunted by her jamming the knife between the closet doors. Bruno finally arrives on the scene, and emboldened by hearing his voice, Julia breaks out of the closet and runs towards him, with Linda in pursuit. Just as Bruno reaches the pair, Linda manages to pierce Julia through the chest with the knife, killing her. Linda then runs towards Bruno maniacally, with Bruno knocking her out with a brick. Checking on Julia and finding her beyond help, Bruno approaches Linda's body near a corner, but it is soon revealed to be merely a wig when Linda jumps out of a room and attacks, revealing her to be none other than Tony in a dress. His attack is thwarted and Tony ends up stabbing himself, dying as he stresses that he's not a female. As the film ends, Bruno solemnly explains to Sandra's editor that Sandra had correctly guessed Linda's secret – that she was a tormented male child who was bullied for being feminine, and the final reel of the film had revealed just that.
2: Forget the tape torn into shreds, the diary ripped and burnt, the steps, the sounds. But the bloodstains on my pants, you saw with your own eyes.
3: Yes, Bruno, obviously. And I admit, as spots of blood, they looked mighty genuine. But why not add to your list? That stench out there, the smell of the pool, huh? (laughs)
2: What are you saying, sweetheart? You're kidding, aren't you?
3: I'm beginning to get tired of your story.
2: Last night there was someone here, Julia. A girl, Katya. I caught her hiding...
3: Katya, huh? And was she nice?
2: Listen, this is serious. I'm really worried that something happened to her.
3: Yes, Bruno. She was killed while you were playing the piano, all right?
2: You know, Julia, you are being slightly difficult.
3: I'm sorry. I slip away for a night. Drive all this way to see you, and you waste precious time telling me a story about this weirdo girl called Katya. A girl who has a fear of bugs, plus she's into housebreaking.
2: If you had told me that story, I wouldn't believe it either.
3: Now, I'll tell you what the truth is. The minute I turned my back, you found yourself a young admirer. I promise you I shall make you sorry you did that. Now, let's please drop the subject.
2: I feel we ought to make up for lost time.
3: You'll have to break a record because in about 52 seconds I get on the road.
2: You're not really leaving.
3: You know I'm an actress and I have to rehearse.
2: You don't have a rehearsal. You're just pissed off.
3: And you still haven't come down to see me. It's wrong not to. I'm really terrific in my role. Oh, don't make that face. Anyway, you've got your cat yet to save you, like she was doing before she got killed. And
2: if she's really dead? And that blood was really hers? The diary. Katya had written that she'd discovered something, and that she felt a premonition of danger. The killer must have set an appointment with her here.
0: Lamberto Barva's A Blade in the Dark, originally titled La Casa Con Scala Nel Buio, The House of Dark Stairs, is a giallo from 1983, much, much later in the life cycle of the genre. The 70s was obviously long gone, and in the early 80s, the slasher was causing much more of a scream at the box office worldwide. That didn't mean that the giallo was completely dead, however. Arguably, one of the best-known Jallo films was released in 82, Dario Argento's Tenebrae. A real shift was noticeable, however, with Jallo directors beginning to integrate more contemporaneous themes into their work, such as blurred reality with murder obsession, historical sacrifice in The Scorpion With Two Tails, sleazy slasher elements in New York Ripper, pop music video culture in Murder Rock, murderous husbands in Formula For A Murder, supernatural bugs in Phenomena, you get the picture. Barber, however, tries his hand at a giallo specifically for TV in this particular instalment, though it was ultimately not to be. Yes, folks, A Blade in the Dark was commissioned for Italian TV, to be shown in four 30-minute blocks with a climactic murder scene occurring at the end of each one. As was the case with the Houses of Doom series from Lucio Fulci and Umberto Lenzi, Barva's finished film was ultimately deemed too violent for the network and was cut down into a feature-length film for cinematic exhibition. It's a good old-fashioned giallo structure with plenty of gory delights, a Argento slash Fulci, but its original TV status does leave a bit of extra padding that's likely to be noticeable for some tastes. However, let's start at the beginning. Right from the get go, we get some good classic jello tropes, especially in the form of the opening scene where the killer's previous trauma is depicted in a film context. We'll talk a little bit about this film within a film technique later, but the opening is a particularly effective banger, especially as the theme music is a real belter of a tune. The themes of shadows and darkness are introduced quite early, as are the themes of childhood trauma, specifically the taunting of the blonde kid that he's a female if he's too scared to go down into the shadows. Darkness, childhood trauma and misogyny are pretty much your unholy trinity of ideas to feature in your giallo, so Barva certainly relies on the trusted favourites. His inspiration from the classics also extend to other more recognisable features – Bruno's status as a musician in peril is very similar to that of Marcus Daly's character in Argento's Deep Red, while the featuring of whispers and trying to work out a secret from them is very reminiscent of the secret flowers moment in Argento's Suspiria. Arguably, though, one of the biggest influences on this film is Argento's Tenebrae from the previous year, which Barber had actually assisted on as well. The mansion and its layout is very similar to the one featured in Tenebrae, and certain scenes and design choices are reflections of the ones that Argento's made. As an example, Katia and Angela's costume styles are very similar to the first victim of Tenebrae, with white blouses and short skirts being in the order of the day. Katya's dead body being dragged away leads to some very similar framings, with the sight of Ania Perione's corpse in Argento's film, and the almost fetishistic focus on Linda's craft knife is eerily similar to the scenes of the killer's razor in Tenebrae's scenes. Though we'll explain more on this later, Linda slash Tony's motivation and character arc is also extremely similar to that of the good old classic Psycho, in which a female personality periodically takes over and forces the body to murder other women who trigger its psychoses. This trope, however, was fairly done by the time of 1983, but it didn't stop Barber throwing in some good references to the booming slasher at the time as well, like some truly nasty scenes of violence and some tense stalking sequences. Our main guy here is Bruno, a cute musician type who's commissioned by director Sandra to score her latest film, a horror flick involving a maniac killer. While he does work, he leases an isolated mansion to focus his mind while he composes, only to have brutal murders start erupting around him related to the mysterious Linda, the mansion's previous occupant. As protagonists go, he's actually fairly clued in, being pretty damn perceptive enough to spot oddities around the house. Noises, blood spatters, torn tissue, you name it, he can spot it. But despite his quietly obtained degree in investigative work, however... He also seems to be a bit slow on the uptake as he flip-flops quite sporadically from believing wholeheartedly that he's in danger to dismissing it casually when discouraged by someone else. In spite of Linda's habit of cleaning up super effectively with just a box of Kleenex, Bruno is able to piece together enough fragments to deduce that a knife has been used in his bathroom, for example, and that blood has been shed. But then he just sort of stays in the house without any real panic. I mean... I thought musicians are meant to be a bit more easily exercised than this. He's not too bad as protagonists go, though. I mean, he's at least not a huge dick, and he genuinely seems to care about what's going on, even if his own safety isn't exactly catered for. Katya is also quite spunky and enjoyable to watch, even if she is sadly underused a little. The same with Angela, really. I wonder if the screenplay had actually given them a bit more to do before it was recut to be a movie. Despite the fact that we only learn a little bit about them, they're performed well enough to be bummed out a little when they suffer such brutal deaths. Julia is a bit more of an enigma, as her character arc flits around all over the place in accordance with what the script needs. Sometimes she's attentive, other times cold. She's clearly a liar, as evidenced by her boss revealing it, but then there's seemingly no reason that she needed to have lied, especially as she frequently dislikes Bruno's company and picks fights over silly things. She alternates between believing him about the killings to then admonishing him for his obsession with them. In Bruno's own words, you do wonder how the pair of them ever got together. It's probably for this reason that I didn't get too bothered about Julia's death at the end. Her character seemed a little too functional, flitting around in approach to suit whatever the script required at the time. Giovanni suffers from the same problem, being fairly functional, especially as a red herring with his collage of erotica in his private cottage. Sandra's character is also not as memorable, simply because we don't get to know her too much, though I do have to appreciate her view of alcohol, where she muses to Bruno that she could never live with him as he doesn't possess enough whiskey, a girl after my own heart. This latter bit, though, leads into some of the more odd aspects of the film, which has the tiniest ear for dialogue that I've heard in a long time – I suspect that some of it may be due to being lost in translation, but some material that I've read suggested that writers Dardano Sacchetti and Elisa Briganti were just not as passionate about the project as Barva was, and they frequently clashed about which direction to take the film in. The dubbing by familiar voice actors is partly to blame, but you get some real gems here like, Bruno, it's me, I'm Julia, your girl. Please don't begin with this again, just please don't begin... You know I'm an actress and I have to rehearse. You know, Julia, you're being slightly difficult. Amongst all these, though, Bruno doesn't gain any points for mansplaining that's not a spider, it's a cockroach to the frightened catcher. It's very definitely a spider, and the viewer can see it as well. There's also the opening taunting of you're a female, you're a female, you're a female. I mean, who says it like that? Even for the most fetid of misogynists, the word female feels far too clinical in this context. While the project did start as an episodic miniseries, I can't judge it too harshly, but it does have to be said that some scenes in the film are pretty ponderous. It's rather long as Jello films go anyway, running at 1 hour 45 minutes, but when you get scenes like Bruno and Sandra wandering through the house when they hear what turns out to be Julia skulking upstairs, which goes on for an agonising six minutes you can't help but sometimes look at your watch. It also doesn't help that a blade in the dark is a bit unique in Jallowland for having the gaudy fashion and decadent interior design notably absent. In fact, the mansion, which belonged to producer Luciano Martino, is so sparsely decorated that it doesn't even feel truly occupied. Even a minimalist decoration approach seems to have more life in it. The house just feels a little bit too vacant, with hardly any pictures on the walls and an abundance of unfinished walls and boxes. Even though I understand that I sound completely jaded at this point, I'd have to just say how fond I am actually of this film. Eschewing the Italian indulgence from the film doesn't make it any less giallo-like, or enjoyable for that matter. If anything, it enhances the more popular slasher elements that were prevalent at the time – Certain moments, like the recurring image of the rhythmic snapping of the craft knife, are really effective and they broaden the tension to fill the whole subsequent scenes. Even the slowly creeping movements up the stairs before Angela is killed are teeming with tension, especially with the length of that butcher knife. We can't go any further though without mentioning the soundtrack, with the main theme being a particular highlight. In some moments of the film, the music becomes a diegetic piece as as it's revealed that it's the very score that Bruno is composing, which adds quite a nice touch, really, to how the story is structured. Combined with the opening scene, which is a film within a film, Barva blurs the lines between what's actually real within the film's world and constantly brings to the fore the role of films in violence of this nature. It's probably then no surprise that Linda chooses to strangle Sandra to death using the reels from her own film. In some of the stalking moments, you also get a very rhythmic and harrowing drum heartbeat, which again, ratchets up the tension quite nicely. It's just a pity there's so much ponderance in some of the other scenes, because when the stalking bits work, they work exceptionally well. And then we get to the violence, which does give Fulci's accusations of misogyny a bit of a run for their money. Catcher is slashed very painfully on her hand and face in a similar style to Angie Dickinson in Dress to Kill, just before she's stabbed in the stomach and throat in the basement. Amongst the brutality of this, however, Linda then does take an inordinate amount of time dragging her body through the gardens. Angela, however, gets one of the more brutal-feeling kills probably in the whole Jello genre, with just a few exceptions. Like Jallo in Venice. She's skewered through the hand while she's vulnerably washing her hair in the sink, and then she has a plastic bag shoved over her head before being repeatedly battered into the hard sink. When this torch is over, she falls unconscious and then has her throat slit. Even by today's standards, this scene is pretty damn nasty and it feels very overkill, so much so that you wonder if Linda hadn't had a more personal vendetta against Angela. The other murders in the film are less intense than the first two – Giovanni is bludgeoned with a wrench, with a bit of blood spurts, but Sandra's strangulation and Julia's knife through the heart are relatively bloodless by comparison. Sandra's death, however, does have the added creepiness of Linda disturbingly dragging the corpse around and playing with it, almost, giggling maniacally the whole time. The reveal of Tony's character as Linda wasn't particularly shocking, simply because it had been done in Psycho and had been reused a few times since. Though his reasonings are as standard a giallo trope as normal, it's fairly well plotted out as these things go, and instead of delivering a huge clusterfuck of information at the end that's usually the standard, there's enough clues and references beforehand peppered throughout the film. A seasoned Jallo enthusiast can probably detect where this is going, even from the opening, with boys taunting their friend that he's a girl for not braving a dark stairway. Other references to the conclusion involving gender and sexuality are present in the killer slashing at a magazine displaying women's breasts, the fact that Sandra arrives dressed in a masculine suit, and Julia's offhand reason for the closure of her play being homosexuality in females. In the words of Bruno, that explains it, people don't want to know about that. Tony indeed kept that trauma of being taunted a secret, as being a feminine man in any way is considered probably one of the worst things ever, especially for an Italian audience in the 80s. Thankfully, things are sort of changing in today's world, so femininity in men shouldn't be such a big deal today, but unfortunately in some circles it's still a big deal. Tony, however, represses his dislike for femininity so much that he creates an alter ego, Linda who not only dresses in very traditional conservative female dress, but is overly emotional and prone to psychotic breaks when she sees something overly sexualized and feminine. The film, of course, though, depicts Linda's violence as a problem of Tony's toxic masculinity, which is exactly how it should be depicted. Linda is not a self-hating harridan who dislikes women in a permissive society. Tony is the one who hates women, as they can be feminine without consequence – ...while he's relegated to hiding these feminine characteristics as something detrimental and shameful. Again, it's no surprise that Linda uses the longest butcher's knife she can find... ...lovingly caressing it with her hands before stalking around with it in the house. A pure phallic symbol, if ever there was one. In a final twist of irony, though, Tony is undone by this very knife that he wields... ...fended off by Bruno and causing the blade to stab Tony in the abdomen... It is, after all, Tony's own fragile mind and feigned masculine dominance that ultimately ends him. A Blade in the Dark is certainly worth seeking out, even if you're only a casual Jello fan. It's simple enough to follow and has enough resemblance to a slasher to be considered an Italian counterpart, but it does have enough doses of traditional jell tropes and enough bonkers spaghetti flourishes to satisfy ardent genre fans. Main heartthrob Bruno was played by Italian actor Andrea Occupinti, whom I've talked about before when we discussed Fulci's New York Ripper. Shout out to my friend Amanda Reyes, or Made for TV Mayhem, for anyone who wants to hear truly impassioned discussions about the wonderful world of TV movies. She has a bit of a thing for him, and so do I, quite frankly, but luckily for me, he's also a fellow traveller of the chocolate escalator. So, sorry Amanda... Italian actress Annie Papa played horror film director Sandra. She'd had a relatively small career, but nonetheless appeared in some recognisable films like Ring of Darkness and Sergio Martino's The Great Alligator. Tony was played by veteran Italian cult actor-slash-director Michele Soavi, who's, well, been in almost everything we've covered. Not even joking, he's very prolific in the Italian movie game. Katia was played by actress Valeria Cavalli, who later popped up in Argento's Mother of Tears, the third in his Supernatural Mother trilogy, along with Inferno and Suspiria. Fabiola Toledo played the role of Angela, who was in Lamberto Barva's later splatter epic, Demons, and even Joe D'Amato's sexy non-sequel, Caligula two The Untold Story. Stanko Molnar, whom we've seen in Lamberto Bava's debut film, Macabre, played the slightly swarthy groundskeeper Giovanni, whilst another familiar face comes in the form of Lara Lamberti, whom we discussed before on Fulci's Enigma. The blonde and very recognisable kid from Fulci's house by the cemetery, Giovanni Fretzer, played the movie version of Tony... While one of the other kids in the film, the credits don't exactly specify, showed up in Demons 2, 1988's Until Death, and even ended up working in various roles on the first Final Destination movie. When it comes to the crew behind the cameras, though, there's not too much to talk about, as we've pretty much talked about nearly everyone – Director Lamberto Barber's been mentioned when we covered Macabre, while writers Elisa Briganti and Dardano Ciacchetti almost rival Mr. Soavi when it comes to mentions on this show. Speaking of which, Michele Soavi also assisted Barber on this film as the assistant director, whilst Mino Loy and Luciano Martino as the producers have also been in my mentions on previous episodes. Cinematographer Gian Lorenzo Battaglia has also been spoken of when we did Island of Mutations, So the only new person of note here is Giovanni Corridori, who did the bloody special effects. He's worked on The House of Laughing Windows, Zombie Flesh Eaters, Contamination, Tenebrae, Escape from the Bronx, Opera, and Once Upon a Time in America. Despite being released in 1983, A Blade in the Dark didn't get distribution in Britain until 1987, when the aftermath of the video nasties had led to much stricter censorship and scrutiny over violence in films. It was released by Vestron Video in 1987, in a shorter print that was produced for the US market, missing around 12 and a half minutes of superfluous footage. This version, however, was subjected to an extra 1 minute and 50 seconds of BBFC edits, Removing shots of Katya being stabbed in the stomach with the craft knife, almost the entirety of the bathroom murder of Angela, it reduced Giovanni's bludgeoning and the scene of him uncovering the dead bodies in the water tank. Eventually, Vico released a version on DVD in 2001, with the perfunctory scenes of the original Italian version reinserted and the BBFC cuts waived, finally granting us a complete version of the film for the first time which I actually remember buying when I first got into this era of films. In typical Vipco style, though, they boasted that this version they sold had 13 minutes of previously banned footage restored, which is not strictly true, as most of these scenes were the non-violent trimmings reinserted from the original. But why let that get in the way of some advertising, eh? It was eventually succeeded by a cleaned-up version from 88 Films on DVD and Blu-ray in 2015, which also boasts some very nice extras and features. But it's also available in the US and across Europe in various forms if you want to seek it out. Well folks, that's the end of this special Jalloween comeback of the Nasty Pasty. So I hope everyone enjoyed the return, and you never know, there may be some more coming soon. First off though, big shout out to Chris Clayton and Tom Elliott of the Strange and Deadly Show, and also Christopher Brown of the Video Nasties podcast. They're both back in business and they're both covering the section three list of video nasty films. So for anyone interested, I strongly recommend these podcasts and all these guys are extremely knowledgeable, affable and humorous too. As this episode was on Jallo Films, there's also a new podcast on the block from fellow Twitter horror experts Senior Ward and Rachel Nisbet called Fragments of Fear, which are covering the more obscure Jallo Films. I do advise you to check this one out if you're an ardent Jallo lover, as I'm sure that they're going to cover something new for you to discover. Finally, if any of my listeners also listen to Screaming Queens, the horror podcast with a queer eye view, you may have heard a teensy rumour on their latest Halloween special that I'm going to be doing a guest appearance, and they're right. More details on that from them very soon, but if you're interested in both a hetero and a queer perspective on some obscure and some not-so-obscure films, I really can't recommend them enough, so give them a listen. Also, they do innuendo jokes, just like Strange and Deadly, so... Really, what's not to like? In addition, Nasty Pasty will be having some giveaways soon on Twitter and Facebook of video nasty films on DVD, so stay tuned for that. And like I said before, there might possibly be another mini series coming out in the next few months, but I'm going to be reducing it down to a single film per episode. The work on my book is taking precedence, as that's absorbing most of my passion at the moment. Until you hear me again, though, take care of yourselves and have a wonderfully spooky Halloween. Bye for now.